Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara. Today's guest is Dr. Andy Morgan, a graduate of French Pacific College in California, received his medical degree from Loma Linda University Medical School, did a psychiatry residency at Yale, received his MA in History of Medicine and Science at Yale, and also received a fellowship in forensic psychiatry at Yale. And these days, Dr. Morgan is teaching across the street at the University of New Haven. In addition to that, Dr. Morgan has been enormously helpful to both leadership under fire and the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. We are forever grateful for his efforts. And Dr. Morgan, we thought it would be a perfect opportunity to have you here today, given that we are just a few days away from the the passing of the 9-11 Remembrance. I'd like to talk to you about resilience and the impacts of traumatic events. And I guess I would start by saying, uh, what prompted you to join Yale University and work at the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress? Well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, What prompted me to get interested in PTSD was one of my professors that I had met at Loma Linda whose uh, name was Clarence Carnahan, and he had given me the opportunity to meet and work with former POWs. And I was interested in the idea in psychiatry about a disorder that couldn't apparently occur unless something happened in the external environment. In other words, there had to be a cause in the environment to create a mental disorder. And I liked that idea. I thought, well, that that makes it an interesting mental illness to uh, study and to work with. And so I was attracted to the program at Yale because they were part of the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. That was a a multi-site consortium that was created by Congress originally, I think, in 1986 or 87, and then it was reformed across five sites. And the uh, Clinical Neuroscience Division was at Yale, where the main effort would be on understanding brain chemistry, differences in brain chemistry and brain functioning, in people with and without post-traumatic stress. So that was the that was the big appeal to go to the National Center and to work on post-traumatic stress disorder. I liked working with those with the patients who suffered from that in the VA system. And I enjoyed the challenges that were there from a neuroscience standpoint. And being at Yale gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about that and then help it through a number of research projects over the years help enhance our understanding of the illness and what we can do for it. Terrific. And what were the underlying reasons for the creation of the center? Well, the history of, of post-traumatic stress disorder is longstanding in terms of sort of the history of the kinds of problems that people suffer from after being exposed to combat. And uh, so we can see things in, in history. Certainly, uh, as recently, if you look back in the literature um, in the Civil War, and then the Japanese-Russian War, the First World War, uh, Second World War. It's gone by various names from nostalgia in the Civil War to shell shock 
to combat neurosis or war neurosis in World War II. And then finally, the current term PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. The emergence of the name post-traumatic stress disorder came out of a uh, sort of a movement inside psychiatry to recognize that this was an illness that was caused by something outside the individual, external to one's personality or lifestyle. And the, the idea was to get away from the idea of a combat neurosis, meaning that a person's constitution, internal conflicts, the way they navigated the world is what created the disorder rather than trauma itself. So it, the name reflected a shifting understanding of the impact that traumatic events can have on humans. And the name was created to emphasize sort of that point that this is an illness that's caused by exposure to what we call traumatic events or events in which a, person, a person's life is put at risk or the lives of other people or where there's a significant risk of physical harm or mutilation, maiming, uh, and things like that. So it was meant to reflect a mental illness that comes from exposure to events that aren't part of our everyday life that we call traumatic events. The um, criteria for it have changed over time. In the original emergence of the diagnosis in the early 80s, the traumatic event had to be referred to as something that was outside the range of normal human experience that was modified over time because for some people trauma is not outside the range of normal human experience they live in a part of the world where trauma is all too frequently encountered so the, the terminology around a traumatic event has been modified over time but the idea is still the same that these are events in which a person is suddenly their life is suddenly put at risk or their physical integrity or the lives of people they care about or that they're observing. So the expansion of the uh, criteria for traumatic events now allows for not only the victim of a traumatic event to develop this disorder, but a witness to a traumatic event. If someone was a witness to the killing of other people or the torture of other people or the raping of other people, um, they too could suffer from PTSD and the new criteria allow for journalists who just might be reporting on events or watching videos about events or, or therapists who are exposed to too many uh, trauma stories, stories of people's trauma have also been known to affect people's psychological states. So the, the diagnostic criteria now permit a little wider range for thinking about the kinds of individuals that can develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So people who are directly exposed to trauma and people who are indirectly exposed to trauma. And you spoke about the history. Could you briefly talk about the work of Henry Crystal with the Holocaust survivors? Yes, Dr. Crystal worked um, with, as you mentioned, Holocaust survivors and was very interested in the longstanding impact of that significant event, that enormous sort of experience of being uh, in a concentration camp and surviving the horrors of the camp. And in his work, a number of concepts uh, became recognized by the, the psychiatric community that trauma affected not only a person's memory to be thinking about an event 
but also made a deep impact in the ways they could even experience their own emotions, identify their emotions. There's a term called alexithymia, which is sort of referring to the idea that a person doesn't have any words to describe how they feel. And then out of Henry Crystal's work, people began to recognize as well that trauma exposure could change the way a person saw themselves, the world, other people, and that it could lead to a transgenerational uh, sort of transmission, uh, transmission of the side effects of trauma exposure in how it affected people's degree of trust in other people, their outlook, the degree of hopefulness. Uh, so his work was really influential in helping us think about it, PTSD in a number of ways from not only a neurobiological perspective, but from that psychosocial perspective and the, the ways trauma could affect us um, in many areas of our lives. And with that work, did it also show that not everybody who was a victim uh, during the, the Holocaust, that not all of them were impacted? Did that open up a door of understanding? You're correct, it did. I, mean, I think what most people uh, forget, if they work in mental health for a very long time and only work with patients who've been exposed to trauma, we can quickly fall into the belief that everyone who's exposed to trauma gets sick because we don't really realize how many people who are healthy have also been exposed to traumatic events. So in Dr. Crystal's work, there was a recognition that many people who survived their Holocaust experience did not have something that we might call post-traumatic stress disorder today. And over time, that has helped us understand the concepts of what is normal responding to uh, horrific events, what is post-traumatic stress disorder in response to horrific events, and an, a concept that sort of people call it a new concept, but it's not really new, but the way we think about resilience um, and post-traumatic growth are terms that people will talk about today, that there are people who get exposed to trauma and seem to be pretty resilient to its effects. In other words, they don't seem to be as negatively affected by horrible events um, as do other individuals. And it's really common to find people who are quite stress hardy and stress resilient in the very professions that are trying to help other humans who are exposed to trauma. So in, in emergency work, in, in the military work, in the firefighting community, where you have many professionals who are exposed on a daily basis to horrible events and who keep on working and who are fairly stress resilient about the exposure to all the events and keep functioning quite well over time as a group. So in the end, we've come to understand that you know, not everybody will get post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, most people do not. Even in cases of rape, it's about 50% of people who have been sexually assaulted and raped who will develop PTSD, but it's not 100%. For torture, uh, the percentage is a bit higher. It's probably in the 70, 70% range. But there are people who have suffered from torture who do not have post-traumatic stress disorder. So we now recognize that there are some individuals who seem to be particularly resilient when exposed to traumatic events, even more so than the average person. But I would stress again that most people in our population in the United States 
over half of the population will endorse being exposed to a traumatic event, but the base rate of post-traumatic stress is about 8% in the general population. So the majority of people experience terrible events and they find ways of coping, adapting, and moving on with their life um, and don't have a chronic mental illness because of it. Terrific. And shifting gears, I can recall you lecturing that some of the work that you did with the military had almost a twofold purpose. One, to identify, the military wanted to identify people who were stress hardy, and at the other realm, you were able to identify people who may be impacted. To the extent that you, you may talk, could you talk at first about the work that you did at SEER school and, and what that taught us? Yes. Um, so while I was at Yale working in a traditional laboratory, we had been making different kinds of discoveries about the different ways our brain makes use of our adrenaline systems when under stress. And we were getting lots of clues about differences in people with and without PTSD, in combat veterans with and without PTSD. However, at the time, we didn't have any wars going on. So we did not know if the differences that we were seeing in brain functioning and neurochemistry in the veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder compared to the combat veterans who did not have post-traumatic stress disorder, we didn't know if those differences we were observing were uh, differences due to you know, upbringing, genetics, or predisposing factors that made a difference in who went on to get PTSD, or whether the differences were, were a side effect of the illness, sort of like when people have diabetes, the side effect of poor sugar control is some neuronal damage, so they lose sensitivity in, in their feet, for example, um, or whether or not the symptomatology we were looking at was part of the physiology of the illness itself. So we needed to do some prospective studies or forward-looking studies to look at people before they were exposed to trauma and follow them to understand why and how some people go on to get sick and some people don't. So at the time in the 90s, we didn't have a war going on. And I had been a Naval Reserve officer when I was uh, in medical school and in my residency. And so I started phoning uh, different military bases and trying to see if we could study people in the special operations community because I knew they were deploying um, all over the world um, in the 90s for various high-stress missions. And I got a call uh, from one of the colonels who invited me to come down and give a talk and then invited me to stay and introduced me to the survival school training program, which is their code of conduct training. But part of that training involves being put in a mock POW camp for a number of days to experience some of the pressures that former POWs have experienced and to learn how to take care of each other and adhere to the Geneva Convention rules and to recognize what unethical countries will try and do to people who are detained. And I was given permission to study people before, during, and after they were in survival school and then to follow them. And be able, I was able to look at psychological variables and neurobiological variables by, by drawing their blood, having them spit in little tubes, sometimes putting electrodes on their head to measure brainwave activity. And we were able to discover that many of the differences that we saw were distinguishing between special operations folks and, and general troops. So 
between, and when I say general, they were still pretty hardy, right? Rangers and Marines versus Green Berets. And uh, we, we were able to look at some of the differences that we saw in the Green Berets mimicked some of the differences that we would see in non-human animals that are stress hardy. So for example, in, in non-human animals, there's a fun little chemical called neuropeptide Y that's made in neurons that so looks like a Y and it, it really helps your brain make full use of norepinephrine without the side effects that are negative of norepinephrine. And animals that are very stress hardy have more of it, uh, make more use of it during stress and they stay more in tune with their environment. They're not as anxious. They're still able to solve the problems that they're put under. And then we found that in the special operations folks, they had higher levels of neuropeptide Y and compared to the other participants at Sears School, they were mentally more clear, uh, were able to navigate um, better and remember and problem solve better than the other students. And these performance metrics were related to the degree to which they had more neuropeptide Y in their body. So that was really nice evidence for the idea that some people just not, they come equipped with the genes and they release more neuropeptide Y than other people. And we know that that would be at least one factor uh, that might help us understand why and how some people do and or don't get post-traumatic stress. And then a colleague of mine, Joel Galertner, ended up doing a study after Hurricane Katrina and actually looking at the genes that program for neuropeptide Y and found that for people who had a version of the gene that doesn't make very much of the gene under stress, they were at four times the risk for getting PTSD after exposure to trauma like Hurricane Katrina. So the studies at SEER helped, helped me and my colleagues learn um, a number of different avenues to stress hardiness and resilience that were sort of the opposite patterns that we were seeing in our veteran populations with post-traumatic stress. And that was able to give us some clues to think about what are the factors that contribute to stress resilience and stress hardiness and helped us brainstorm on okay, what things might be more helpful for people with post-traumatic stress. Interesting. Was there ever any follow-up of those individuals who scored high in those, in those elements when um, they studied after combat? Lots of the SF folks that I have, they stayed in for full careers. And the, the base rates of PTSD in the Green Beret population are about 2%. So we, we do know that as in that group, the development of post-traumatic stress disorder is actually quite low, even though their exposure to trauma is quite high. Within that group though, we did do a study where we were able to track the number of military traumas they were exposed to and look at the levels of baseline neuropeptide Y when they were not under stress. And we saw a similar pattern to what has been seen in non-human animals when they're, when they're stressed over time, over and over and over, baseline levels of NPY decline. And they do that in these special populations as well. Uh, we were interested in that because we thought that may, give us, that may give us an idea in the future as to how to see if we can do some preventative medicine modeling to even reduce the risk further. So the way we think about it for that community is, there is self-selection going on. People who 
find that they do well under stress or want exciting exposure to war, you know, combat exposure. It's like people say, I want to be a fireman. I want to go to fires. I want to, I want to rescue people. They're already lower in anxiety than the person who says, oh my, no, I wouldn't want to do that. So there's a, there's a self-selection for people who sign up to get in those special operation clubs, if you will, which is probably why when we look at the historical rates of PTSD in the Vietnam era, we see different levels of PTSD because those were people who responded to a draft and you know people they served although it wasn't their their first wish to sign up go be in the military and go to a war and so i think when we look at that mix in the vietnam data we do see higher rates of ptsd than we do now when we look in our self-selected sort of professional um, military Still, it does depend on, on some arenas. We still know that the more trauma units are exposed to, the greater their risk of having some side effects uh, to that, that exposure. But in the special operations community, they receive a great deal of attention and support. So that I think that helps reduce uh, the risk ratio as well to the development of PTSD. And has the military alter or improve their training based upon the understanding that you and others are developing? I think in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. <laughs> the uh, change happens slowly. I think in some very positive ways, when I was there doing my research, both at Sears School and, at, and uh, looking at selection and assessment and dive school, they began to realize that their instructors were actually doing a very good job. There, there was some worry initially whether or not instructors were being arbitrary in selection programs, you know, just accepting people that they like and kind of running out of selection people that they don't like. Uh, but the fact that we were able to predict who would be successful in a selection program with some things even from day one and we knew things that the instructors didn't know, like internal chemistry. The fact that we could do that in a predictive modeling way and match what they were making decisions on allowed me to be able to brief the command and say, your instructors who don't know anything about these data are making choices in what they see in candidates that are giving you a stress-hardy product at the end. So even if they don't speak you know, neurospeak, but, but neurobiology, what they see and what they say works in their line of work seems to be valid. So, and I, I suspect that's probably true in the firefighting community as well. When you have experienced cadre looking at candidates, you see things that you know from your experience will work and some things that just probably won't work out well. So I think the, the biggest contribution that some of my research made was helping the command understand they can trust their, their cadre overall. We did do some where we showed how you could help people in recovery by giving them different levels of carbohydrate drinks after exposure to stress uh, for that. But um, I think in, in other ways, the, the military still has been very slow to think about selection also from that psychophysiology genetics perspective that some people are differentially predisposed to doing better under stress than other people. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a natural 
hesitancy to say you're going to make a decision based on somebody's neurobiology. And my, my comment is usually, well, we already make decisions on how fast people can run, how much weight they can lift, what they can do. This might be just one other piece, or you might integrate it into ongoing sort of programs for the healthcare of warfighters or maybe even firefighters right, to preserve their performance over time. But those things are difficult, I think, because commands change very frequently. And most studies that are funded, mine included, are not longitudinal studies. We do these cross-sectional looks from time to time. And I think, I think to really evaluate the efficacy of sort of preventive medicine approaches to sustaining performance over time, we need like sort of programmatic support over time to be able to track and follow people. So one day, maybe someone will get to do that. <laughs> sure, that'd be great work. It's interesting that the SF guys um, are studied in such a manner. But after 20 years of combat, how have the conventional forces fared? The conventional forces, um, some have fared well and some have not. I think during our, um, during our 20 years at war, there was a demand for, for bodies, right? To get people to enlist. So I think that in many, many recruiting programs, individuals were accepted into all branches of the military who otherwise would not have been accepted had we not been having war going on. And in part, those changes in recruitment and acceptance of, of the acceptable risk of accepting someone into a life in the military uh, help us understand the increased rates of psychological distress and some of the, some of the data on the increased rates of suicide across different services uh, from the war is that you know, we did, we admitted into the military people who are otherwise more vulnerable to stress and were likely at higher risk for the development of psychological problems from being exposed to trauma. And then in addition to that, our wars been longer than any war most people have been in. So there are some military personnel that I get to work with still to this day who have been in the business of fighting wars since they were 18. And I think the longstanding impact of that is still something we don't, we don't really know the full answer to. I, I think, you know, constantly being in a, in a war zone gives you only one view of how many things go in life, right? Uh, you don't get to see the, the other side of, of humanity. So I don't think we fully know yet, but we do know that many people do suffer from PTSD from it. The good news is, although there's still stigma, people are more willing to talk about it and get help and kind of normalize it and say, look, these are like battle scars and just like, you know, getting burn wounds and getting gunshot wounds. Sometimes you have some psychological scarring that goes on, whether you're having dreams or startle or jumpiness, you know, or you, you always have to sit with your back looking for the exits. Um, those kinds of things, you know, we're trying to help people think about them in a more normal way and saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't be penalized for having those symptoms. There's actually some pretty good therapy for them. And in the future, I think there's actually going to be even better therapy. I mean, the data on the microdosing 
you know, with the psilocybins uh, is really quite impressive for treating some of the symptoms of PTSD. So we're really quite excited about putting a dent in more and more and more of the symptoms that people have and giving them some relief. But I, I think that the destigmatization efforts on the part of the military have been a positive sign. I think you still see pockets where people don't want to talk about it. For me, I think of it like pilots don't want to have their eyes checked. Nobody wants to say anything that would keep them from getting deployed, right? <laughs> but um, I think I think the more comfortable people are in having that conversation, the more they realize people can continue to serve as they can with when they only have one leg. They, we've got some incredible prosthetics now. I know people are still serving in some way in the military, but we've been double amputees, right? So, and I think in the same way, people can understand that uh, combat veterans or sort of combat exposed military personnel who have experience um, haven't lost their brain. They still have the ability to train, mentor, support, and play an active role, you know, in their in their military profession. So knocking down stigma helps people recognize that. So I think that's a positive thing that's come about from it. Sure. And in that same vein, I'm going to bring up the FDNY in the immediate aftermath of that September morning. I mean, uh, we took uh, quite a shot. You know, we were stunned for a little bit, but we got back on our feet. You know, and it wasn't easy. You know, we didn't understand, like resilience was not a word we understood. Stress hardiness, we still don't understand. But we, we get to do things that even like the SF guys don't do. Like we have such connection and such internal support. How do you view that from the outside? You know, I, you know, once I got to get to know you guys, I had a, I had a newer appreciation for some of the similarities and differences um, between special populations in the firefighting you know, community. I think that the community as a group is pretty stress hardy. I mean, we think about it in historical perspective, firefighters have been having routine exposure to traumatic events over and over and over and over, like military personnel being at war for years, right? And I think that some of the factors we now know that have really enhanced the ability of the community, you know, to be resilient or to, to keep functioning over time is you've had really good emotional family support. Like you've been, you're the, the firefighting communities, I think have been a really important uh, aspect of that because people then, when they feel that, that, that group bond, right? You can have a positive attitude. You have a purpose, you have a team attitude. You all have to work together. You know, you're always trying to figure out how do we do this better? How do we do this better? And, and you don't have all the resources. Like you're not like Delta who goes, well, we'd like this. And then you get more money from Congress right away, right? So I think people are, they support each other. They're bonded to each other. They're, they're problem solvers, right? Just because of the nature of the work. And, and they retain that optimism, like we can, we can still go save more people, we can still get the next fire, we can, um, and that attitude is, is really critical for stress hardiness, for, for coping well in life. You know, people are optimistic, they face fear, they, they're altruistic. Some people call it having a moral compass, they call it altruism, you believe in doing something to help other people. Um, there's, like I said, there's social support. Then there's good role modeling. That, that mentorship in the firefighting community, I think, is incredible. And then there's physical training. 
Um, we know that, that, that hard physical training and uh, enhances mental resilience. You know, so we know that challenging your body, challenging your mind, trying to figure stuff out also enhances uh, resilience. And so I, as I've gotten to know you guys at FDNY, I mean, I really see all those factors that are all woven into the clubhouse support and then the training support and the mentorship support and everybody keeping their eye on the main, the main problem set, which is we're trying to save people from burning up in buildings, you know? And, uh, and I, so it's, it's really been delightful to get to know the community and recognize you're doing things overall really well from what we've learned about the things that help people bounce back and, and function well, you know, when they're, when they're doing a very hard job. And, and we're extraordinarily fortunate to have you to help us and to inform us. Cannot say enough of your contribution because we don't have the money joy. that Delta has. Yeah, it's Amen. really a pleasure. I, I learned, I think I learned as much working with you guys as you say you do when, I, when I'm talking too much. But uh, I, no, it's, it's a real pleasure to, uh, to be able to work with you guys. So thank you, I appreciate that. Excellent. So as, as we begin to, to wind down, in your opinion, what will the future hold in regards to the understanding of post-traumatic stress? I think in the future, um, certainly one area of post-traumatic stress research that I think will be really important is on the individual variability. I think that we are really reminded when we pay attention to talking to people that the same event can be interpreted two different ways by two different people. And our understanding right now is that the way we interpret an event has a significant impact on then whether we will or won't go on to develop problems. So I think in the future, hopefully we'll know more about how to do that early recognition of who's interpreting an event in a way that if we can help them change that really quickly, we can prevent the development of the, of the disorder or really you know, sort of cut its lifespan short right? so we don't suffer from it as long. So I, I think that recognizing the individual variability factor on, on the trauma end is gonna be important. I think in terms of treatment, there is an individual variability factor as well trying to identify earlier, sooner rather than later, the people for whom certain kinds of therapies are gonna just work better than other kinds. So for some individuals, just running to give them a medication is not the way to go. It's, it's not as helpful for them. Um, talking to someone, doing something like we call cognitive behavioral therapy can be very, very effective. For, for other people, given their array of symptoms, because there's many different kinds of symptoms in PTSD, it might be that a certain kind of medication is just more beneficial early on right away so they can sleep, so they can have restorative sleep um, and, and still function in their daily life. And as I mentioned a bit ago, the, the new data on the incredible impact of, of drugs like the psilocybin from mushrooms, right? The data are really impressive scientifically, and that when they're paired in a microdose with therapy, people maybe after one 
one trial of it or two, they seem to be cured. Um, what we think happens, the science data suggests that the impact of the psilocybin enhances restructuring so that people are able to rapidly learn and make new connections in the brain between neurons, which helps re-regulate their response to the traumatic event. So it's a really exciting area for, uh, for therapy because it's going to be this fusion of a very tiny dose of, of, of psilocybin with a talking therapy. And people in the community are really excited about it. So I think that's a new direction. And then I think on the resiliency end, I think the new arenas will be giving people more user-friendly and workable ways so they can, in an ongoing way, work on constantly enhancing their own stress hardiness and resilience, getting the messaging out that, you know, by exercising, by challenging your brain, by having some, doing something altruistic, that's not just for you, for somebody else, all these kinds of things really do make a difference inside your head and they do benefit you, right? To, uh, to do these things rather than just waiting. And we know that when you develop those skill sets, if you then are exposed to trauma, you are better equipped to bounce with it and bounce back from it. In the same way that we say, look, you can exercise all you want. It may not make you live longer. But what we can say for sure is that when you do exercise, if you do get sick or if you have a fall or if something happens, you usually are in better physical shape to come back out of the surgery that you had to have or, or something. There's a, there's, it enhances your ability to roll with life. And, and the same is true for these, these psychological traumas that people can run into. So I think in the future, we, we need to have better programs in, in people's health plans that let them know these are programs you can do. They don't cost a lot. It's not like buying drugs. Like It's like learning from the pharmaceutical companies, right? It's learning patterns of life that promote stress, hardiness, and wellness. Excellent. So as we wrap up, we'll do a speed round and, and we'll, we'll knock out some of your favorites here. Your best book related to post-traumatic stress? Oh, best book related to PTSD. It's going to sound strange, but my, the best book is I'd call, I like Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I still think it's the most wonderful book for a lay audience to read. And it gets the point across about, you know, why they don't and why we do. So that, that's, that's my first go-to book. If people want something that's more interesting and historical, Achilles in Vietnam by Jonathan Shea is where he's looking at um, the Iliad, uh, you know, and looking at historical ways that we might understand how war trauma affected people in the past. So that's, it's a pretty fun book as well and, and successful. It's easy to read. And I think people would enjoy that. Excellent. And the most impactful study related to post-traumatic stress? Oh my. Um, well, I think in the, over the last 20 years, the most impactful study was a multi-site study that the National Center was part of, looking at the impact of a form of talking therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy for, for PTSD, and also another one, dialectical behavioral therapy. These kinds of therapies have a bigger impact than really any traditional medications that we have at the present time. So I think what I always tell my patients is, 
this thing works, learning how to be in the driver's seat of what your brain is doing. Your brain is an organ in your body. I know you often mix it up with who you are, but here's the quirks, here's how it behaves, here's how to put you in the driver's seat of it. That's what cognitive therapy is all about. And the five-year outcome sort of findings for people who do that are far better than just giving people meds to take and then looking at how they're doing five years later. So in the big picture, it's the, it's the cognitive behavior therapy literature. The more recent scientific studies over the last four years now are the ones on microdosing and psilocybin. I think the whole community is going, when do we get permission to use them? There's a, there's some, ten, there's trials going on at Yale right now and some other places where people have research permission to use them uh, to study the drugs. But the, uh, the impact of them could be enormous and, and offer a lot of people some help. So I'm excited about those. Interesting. And lastly, which doctor had the most impact on you when you arrived at Yale? Oh, wow. Um, Dennis Charney, Dr. Dennis Charney, he's now down at Mount Sinai. Uh, I think he had the greatest impact on me. He interviewed me and he said, uh, he said, do you know how to do any research? And at the time, I was thinking, I've never done any research. I was like, no, but I, he goes, we're going to teach you and you're going to do it well. And <laughs> no, I said, uh, yeah, I think he made the biggest impact. I'm, I thought I was going to Yale, finish my training, or go back to Southern California, you know, and do talking therapy with wealthy people. Um, and he's the man who uh, got me interested in exploring new ways of researching this illness and discovering things and sort of the, the real thrill and discovery of things in science. You got me really excited about that. Yeah. So I'd say biggest impact on me as a person. Yeah. Excellent. Andy, thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your day. Um, to You're help welcome. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're listening, I'm sure you're in the pursuit of optimal human performance. In that case, you should know. I'm the author of the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. This digital journal is sent monthly via email to share human performance content that provokes thought and generates discussion and fosters self-improvement, both professionally and personally. To receive the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal, visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join the newsletter. Thank you for listening.